Our text from God's Word this morning is Luke 14, or Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, into the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you give us uh, a sense of humility this morning that we would uh, consider our own hearts as uh, we consider the hearts of those uh, in Nazareth. Father, I pray that we would love and cling to Christ rather than drive him away from us. Uh, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we consider this text, I want us to remember that the <laughs> Nazareth is a real place. Jesus really grew up there. These people that have gone to this synagogue their whole life, are real people. And these are real events. Because if we don't think they're real, then we maybe think that there's no way we could be like them. And I want to remind you that those going to the synagogue in Nazareth are the people who have been waiting and hoping for the Messiah. They know that 
things are going to change for them when the Messiah shows up. They are the people waiting for the promises of God to find their fulfillment. For 2,000 years, they've been waiting for the moment that actually comes right into the doors of their synagogue, this moment in time. And yet with any great moment of opportunity, there's also a great moment of tragedy that can come. I feel this every time I watch the Olympics and I consider a race or an event that's about to take place. And I know that these people have pretty much probably given up uh, all other aspects of their life for this moment in time. It's an opportunity for glory and success, but it's also an opportunity to trip on a hurdle and watch four years of training go down the tubes in a moment. So with someone that has no invested interest, I can be sitting there nervous for everybody participating, trying to imagine the culmination of this moment. And yet, all of us have moments with way more at stake. Moments that we don't know if more are going to come or if this is the last opportunity. It's greater stakes for us as we see it was for those in Nazareth. Now, as we look at the Gospels, we see two different types of people that encounter Christ. One type you could describe as being proud, as being presumptuous. They expect certain things from Christ, from the Messiah. And when they see Jesus, they become angry and try to get rid of him. They try to drive him away. They're proud. They're presumptuous. They try to get him out, and they try uh, to, uh, are in the result is anger. The other type of person we see in the gospel is a person you could describe as desperate, humble, and when they see Jesus, they see hope and Rather than drive him away, they receive him. And rather than get angry, they begin to worship. They begin to praise God for him. And I wonder, as I look at this text, which types of people we have here this morning in this room. Let's look at the text. Luke 4, starting in verse 14. Now we've witnessed the birth of Christ, and we've already saw 
Jesus' baptism, where he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Father said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. And we just spent four weeks with Christ in the wilderness, looking at the temptations that uh, Jesus received at the hand of Satan. And the last temptation, ironically, was the temptation to test God. Prove it. Prove your word to be true. Show us, show us a sign. Jesus, if you believe in your Father's word, throw yourself off the temple. Prove God's word to be true. And then we're told that the devil left him until another opportune time. I think that time came really soon after. Now, uh, this particular event in Luke is, is not in chronological order like other Gospels are. This event uh, has taken place after Jesus' ministry has already begun. But Luke puts it right here to help us see uh, this interaction with, with his hometown uh, professors of, of God, his hometown people, is kind of a microcosm of the rest of his ministry and, and what's going to happen as he proclaims the kingdom of God. So look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He has taught in many synagogues outside of his hometown, and everywhere he taught, word is spread that he's amazing. People are glorying in Christ, and almost for sure the people of Nazareth have got word of this ministry that hasn't been taking place in their hometown, but that's been taking place out there. The way people responded to him was like the second group of people, it seems. When he got up and spoke in their synagogues, they he was being glorified by all, we're told at the end of verse 15. But the scene shifts in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, this was common. Uh, there wasn't necessarily one particular minister in a synagogue, but lay believers would get up, and they would read from the law first, and then they would read... Uh, from the prophets, and then often the reader would sit down and in a sense preach his message sitting. So everything's going on as normal. Uh, and we see that it was his custom to do this. He's done this probably hundreds of times in Nazareth. They know who he is. And uh, he stood up to read. He was handed 
uh, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Now, Jesus gets the scroll of Isaiah, goes to a certain point, and begins to read. And here's what he reads in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So as Jesus read... He read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he took a line from Isaiah 42 and also a verse from Isaiah 56 as as he read. Now, I want you to think of something for a minute. Does this seem like good news? (laughs) Does he not read the very best news people of Israel could ever hear. It's definitely the thing they've been waiting for, but there's one problem. This text says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This Messiah that's going to come is going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. Well, we've just seen that in the baptism of Christ. And he's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He's the prophet Moses was talking about, the greater prophet, the final prophet. He's the anointed one, the last prophet proclaiming good news. And he's also the one that's going to bring about this good news. He's the Messiah that's going to bring it to completion. So whoever this text text is talking about, it's talking about the king, the anointed one, the prophet and the Messiah that can bring it all to fruition. Uh, Let's just dive in a little bit into what this all means. What does it mean to proclaim good news to the poor? Now, surely it does mean that he has good news for those who are just materially poor. God does have good news for them. But in a spiritual sense, the Messiah has good news for those who are spiritually poor and broken. (laughs) He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are held in slavery to their sin, those who know that they can't free themselves in recovery of sight to the blind, those who don't know how to find the right way out. And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He's the one to set them free from the oppressors. And as we think about this and uh, imagine 
what this means. This good news is for a very particular group of people. That, that, that's what Isaiah said. He has good news for the poor, for the captive, for the oppressed, for those who are brokenhearted, for those who are blind. He has good news for them. And this text ends by saying, uh, 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 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, any Israelite would know that this was pointing to uh, the year of Jubilee. That's the illustration they would know. So every 50th year was to be a year of Jubilee. You can uh, read about the institution of it in Leviticus 25.10. Here's what that says. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now, Christopher Wright writes about the year of jubilee and he says there are two twin concepts that are fundamental to understanding this institution. Liberty and return. Those who have incurred debts were released from what remained un, unrepaid and from any bondage which their debt had required. They were thus able to return to full ownership of any land that the family had been forced to surrender to a creditor as a guarantee for loans. The law had the effect, therefore, of reuniting the family on its ancestral land, not later than a generation after the original debts were incurred. It was these two components of the Jubilee, freedom and restoration, that colored the use of the idea of Jubilee in the prophetic and later New Testament thought. So... If the year of the Lord's favor is here, it's going to be a time when people are brought back to their family. Those who were given a certain amount of land because this is the clan that they belong to in Israel, but they lost it because they needed to sell that land to their creditors, at that year, debts were forgiven. They were able to come back, gain that land. If you were a slave, you were set free. Captives were set free, and people were brought into their own land. This is the picture. Jesus is saying, that time is here. It's the year of the Lord's favor. And we know that because verse 20 tells us, in Luke 4, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now let me tell you something. It's a lot easier to hope in the Messiah, the one who is to come, to believe in him, than to believe in the one who says, here I am. I am here. 
It's the point of decision. What are you going to do with him? All this future hope culminates with here he is. It's no different than in our culture today. If you're seeking for truth, the culture says, oh, that's amazing. Go after truth. If you say you found truth, now they want to kill you. That's closed-minded. Jesus is here on the scene saying, these prophecies I've just spoken to you have been fulfilled today in your hearing. And then we're told, now imagine, they all know Jesus. He came to church with them. He came to the synagogue his whole life. And then verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of, out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now, that translation's a little difficult because it could be also be translated. Uh, all those that spoke well of him is, is maybe more literally translated, all witness to him. So they're recognizing this guy has authority, this guy's impressive, but then we're told, so they're all talking about him, they're all speaking about him, and marveled. Now, marveled is different than admired. They're amazed. They're seeing him speak, and they're marveling at the things he's saying. Let me give you uh, Mark's version of this same account, and, and I think we'll get a clearer picture of what's happening in the synagogue. Mark 6.2 says this, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. So they're shocked, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and of Joseph and of Judas and Simon? They know all of his brothers and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. That's what Mark says. Well, these are pretty lofty things you're claiming, Jesus. Your sisters are right there and we know your brothers. We know who your father is. We know where you come from. And Jesus says to them in verse 23, he knows what they're thinking. Doubtless, you'll quote to me this proverb. Here's what they're thinking in their heads. Physician, heal yourself. Okay, we've heard about you, Christ, Jesus. We've heard you've been teaching in other synagogues and doing mighty works. Big claim for someone we've watched grow up from a little baby. Prove it. Show us signs. Show us your wonders. Okay, if you're claiming to be the physician, heal yourself. Are you really claiming what you're claiming? And then Jesus says, or, and then they say, they, 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 they just flat out say it. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. We're poor. 
We have blind in our midst. We have those who are blind. We're oppressed by the Roman government. Come on, hometown boy. Deliver for us. Put your money where your mouth is. And then he says to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He's trying to help them see something. You see, the the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Their fathers did not treat the prophets well. In fact, later in Luke, in Luke 13.31, here's here's what we read. At, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow on the following day, for it cannot be that the prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Here's what he's saying. I got to get on with my work because I got to get to Jerusalem so I can die where all the other prophets die. At the hands of God's people. They don't receive their prophets well. They, they never have. And then Jesus tells them, reminds them of two incidences in the Old Testament that happened at the low point in Israel's idolatry. I should say at the high point in their idolatry uh, against him. And here's what he says, but in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up and three years are were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, the land of Sidon was the pinnacle. It's the heartland, the way we would think of like the Bible belt of Baal worship. If there's one place God couldn't do his work would be in Sidon. And there's a famine over the whole land and there's all sorts of starving widows in Israel and yet God doesn't send his prophet to any one of them but rather to this Gentile widow. And you know the story that when God sent him to her and he said, bake for me some cake. She's like, I'm just grabbing some sticks here to bake my last cake and then die. The, the famines reached to where they were, and he tells her that her flour will not run out, nor will her oil, and that God will preserve her mercy on a Gentile. And then uh, he says in verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian, who was the commander of one of their enemies' armies. And we don't have time to go back and look at that story, but one a little girl in Israel in one of the Syrian raids 
was captured, was kidnapped by the Syrians, and she ended up a servant to Naaman's wife. The commander of that army, this little girl becomes a servant, and she sees that Naaman is suffering from leprosy, and she says, if you knew the prophet that in my land, he could heal you. And so we'll look at that story later uh, at at the end of the sermon. And so Naaman was healed. But Jesus' point is this. Don't you remember that when Israel was unbelieving and hard-hearted and adulterous in their hearts, when they were cheating on God with other affections, that God's mercy left Israel in those days and spread out to the Gentiles? Have you forgotten those stories, Jesus says? And then verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up. Now, I just want to point out verse 28. How many in the synagogue? All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. And I'm here to tell you it's a sad story because as far as we can tell in the Scripture, he never came back. He came into his hometown, the synagogue, where all the people of God were waiting for their Messiah. And he showed up. He said, the good news is here. And they couldn't get him out of their midst fast enough. They tried to kill him. Followers of Christ after him experienced similar sort of treatment. Acts 13.46 says this, Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying it is necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. He's speaking in the synagogue. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. You remember Stephen, who at the end of his sermon says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you, which the prophets did, or which your prophets did and your fathers, or which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now notice the similarity. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. They can't stand to hear about this Christ. They can't stand when this Christ shows up, whether literally or through the preaching of the gospel, their own pride gets exposed and they hate it. (laughs) 
They hate it and they need to get rid of him. Now, here's the thing. You and I can be self-deceived. If a whole synagogue of Jewish believers can be self-deceived, then you can be self-deceived. Now, I promise you that when you came in here this morning, you weren't as concerned about how you can be self-deceived, the possibility of you being self-deceived as you should have been, as the Bible warns us of. We learn from this text that Jesus is the Messiah, that when he shows up, all of God's mercy and fulfillment and new covenant promises climax in him. But also from this text, we see how people who were very religious rejected Christ. So I want to look at seven different ways the Nazarenes were self-deceived. And and in light of that, I say to you, do not be self-deceived by not understanding who God has come to save. They should have known from the Old Testament Scripture that the Messiah was only sent to the humble, to the poor, to the captives. Now, they maybe thought of themselves as poor, we should be richer, as captives, look at Rome over us. But they never thought that they were captive because of their own evil that resides in their own hearts. James 2.5, James says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Jesus did not come for the arrogant who are confident in what they know and and in their religion. The second thing we should not be self-deceived of, we should know whom he came for, but second... We shouldn't be deceived by overlooking the ordinary purposes of God. If the Messiah comes, he has to come with more bells and whistles. It's amazing. He did a lot of miracles, but he doesn't look that impressive to the Nazarenes as he won't put on display. Notice Jesus is being tempted to prove, to test God in this moment, to prove himself. He doesn't fall for it. He doesn't do miracles there like he did everywhere else. Their hearts are evil. They're testing God. Prove yourself. But he looked too ordinary. I think sometimes you and I fail to see that God works most often through not some big event, not some amazing new thing, but through the ordinary. And here's where I do want to take a second look at Naaman's story. Because imagine, 
the commander of the Syrian army is who Naaman is. He thinks he pretty highly of himself. But this poor, powerful, rich guy has this disease he can't get rid of. It's kind of like, what a bummer. You, you have such a high role in the world, and yet you can't get rid of this thing. Okay, if there's a prophet in Israel, let's go there. In 2 Kings 5.9, here's what we read. So Na- Naaman shows up. He brought all these gifts, the annual salary that would equal up to 600 men he brings to give as a gift. And this is how rich, how powerful Naaman is. They're bringing these gifts to one of their enemies, Israel, so that they'll receive him. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. He's got a lot of gifts out there that are pretty impressive. But Elijah sends the messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman thinks this is just a ceremonial washing, a ritual. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. You see, I I thought he was going to do this thing that looks so impressive. Could I not wash? Or he says, are not in Abana and Fopar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Why, I have to get into a dirty river when we have rivers? Are you kidding me? He won't even come out and talk to me? Let's get out of here. I thought he's really going to put his power on display. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. It's not just a ritual washing, ceremonial washing. You'll be clean. You'll be healed. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. You see the picture? And he was clean. Naaman and all of his arrogance and all of his pride could not be healed. He had to become like a child. He had to get in a dirty river. He had to be okay with the big show that's not going to come out as they heal this amazing commander of this army. See, God heals the humble and the broken and those who know they're unclean. And Naaman, unlike the Nazarenes, did become humble by God's word, did by faith go in and found himself clean. Don't be self-deceived by a good religious reputation. Religious deception is a real thing. The people whose MO is, we're the ones waiting for our Messiah. All of them tried to kill him. All of them. 
Now, imagine, you're comparing, they're comparing themselves by themselves. I'm a follower of God, right? Yeah, look at, yeah, well, we're all the same here. The problem is, they're all going to hell. They all know the Old Testament. They all know the scripture. They know so much. But when the real Christ comes and in his mercy speaks a word of warning to them, that's what he's doing. He's not just being mean when he's pointing out how Israel was hard-hearted. He's trying to show them, repent. Don't be like your fathers. But they all reject him. I don't care how much you know, how much you've come to church, how much you say, I stand on the word of God. They stood on the word of God more than you and I do intellectually. They knew more. They would have said, they would have never denied that they're waiting for the Messiah. So how can this be? All throughout the Gospels, we have people who believed in Jesus who weren't saved. John 2.23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the difference between the believer who says, Yeah, you're awesome. I believe in you. You're my Messiah but who weren't trusting him in their heart. John 6, 14, after he fed uh, the 5,000, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again uh, to the mountain by himself. They get fed and they say, hey, this is a good deal. He is our, he, he is going to be our king. Let's, let's put him in charge right now. He can just make bread like that. But he leaves and then they try to find him. John 6, 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. They didn't even just want a miracle. That's never the heart of it but because you ate your fill of loaves. Now, we're going to try to understand what's going on deep down in their hearts, kind of get down to the root. How can, what does that mean? They're asking for a sign, but do they really want a sign? See, nobody's going to say this. I have a hard heart to God's Word. I don't like God's Word. When Jesus speaks... I don't like his word. Nobody's going to admit to that. Nobody. But they'll say, there's not enough proof. You see, now you don't have to look at my hard heart. Now you just get to be puffed up as, I'm smarter than all these idiots that are believing with no sign. See, the root issue is not that they need more signs. They wanted the fill of the loaves. Jesus shows up, and rather than add to my own pride and say, you are the good ones, you guys are great, Jesus exposes their idolatry of their heart, and they hate it. You won't show me a sign. No. You want worship. 
You want glory. You want to be on center stage. And when Jesus shows up, He demands worshipers of Him. He's after one type of person, repenters who worship. They run into Jesus. They see their sin. They're broken. They see He's their only hope. As they realize that, they worship Him. A hard heart is a scary thing. And the reason why it's scary, we're self-deceived by the hardening of our heart. When we're not worried about our heart being hardened, you could be going to church your whole life and be sure you're in. But when Jesus shows up, here's the question. Jesus shows up when he exposes your sin. Then how do you react? That's how you find out. How do you like him when he comes in? See, he's intriguing at first, but then he gets intrusive and exclusive. At first, oh, we like him. But then he intrudes a little too far, starts to offend my own pride, claims to be the only way now all of a sudden. Let's get rid of this. It's a sad thing about idolatry. We, we do that. We not only would do that to the Messiah in our idolatry, we do that to our children. If, and I know you've heard me say this, if I'm watching a football game and my heart is loving that game more than I'm loving Jesus and my daughters start playing in front of me and I can't see the TV, I can run right over them in anger and say, get out of my way. See, that's what we do. Jesus was getting in the way of self-worshippers. They were falling to the temptation uh, to test God. Um, I want. I think I want to finish by uh, taking you to Matthew 12. Here's why I went to Matthew 12. They're asking for a sign. They're demanding a sign. Jesus says, <laughs> when your people were evil and unbelieving, God took his mercy elsewhere. So I started looking, okay, what, what else does the gospel say about those who demand a sign? And I, w- I was taken to Matthew 12. I just want to read this section with you and point out a few things. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is Matthew 12, 38. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now why is that? Why does he call them that? If you seek for a sign, you're evil and you're adulterous. See, they don't need more information. They have a hard heart in their idolatrous and that they want another Messiah. See, I trust that all of you trust in Jesus, the name, but I wonder if you trust in the Jesus of the figment of your imagination who never steps on your toes, who never requires repentance, who never requires, who who, who is never allowed to humble you. See, that's a scary thing. We can cheat on Jesus with another Jesus. 
These people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for a Jesus, just not that one that's like that. So they're evil and adulterous is what we're told. And then uh, he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These Jews will get one last chance. They'll see a sign. They'll see one big sign as this one whom they threw out raises from the dead after he's crucified and dead for three days. But here's what it says in verse 41. But the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repenting repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh repented when God's prophet came. Jesus shows up. So Nineveh is going to hold Israel accountable on Judgment Day. And then in verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then he tells this weird story. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to the house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So it'll be with this evil generation. Now, what does that mean? Now, you're going to miss it if you try to figure out what the demons are doing in waterless places, not waterless places. That's not the point. The point is about the people of this evil generation. Here's what I. Howard Marshall says. It's not... The point is not to satisfy curiosity about demons and to warn against the danger, but rather to warn against the danger of a repentance that is purely negative. You know, I don't eat what they eat. I don't do what they do. I keep the Sabbath. I, you know, I don't do that stuff. A relapse can lead to dreadful danger. What is needed, Thomas Charles called, the expulsive power of the new affection. Here's the thing. If a person trusts in God by saying, you know, I'm going to follow all these religious things, I'm not going to do that, but there's no love for God, there's no love for Christ, then that false repentance is actually going to bring about an evil type of people that can try to kill the Christ. That's the point. But the crazy thing when I read this is what the next story Jesus tells. While he was still talking to the people, behold, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And my brothers. And stretching out his hand towards all his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister and mother. See the point? Jesus is saying, 
to them, you think you're in because you're of Israel? My mom and my brothers show up and they think I'm crazy because I might end up dying. He says, here's my people. Here's my mother and here's my brothers. I want to close with this. Don't be self-deceived by failing to see the urgency of your choice. Here's the principle. Mercy moves on. Mercy moves on. You do not know when the last time your heart passes over that hardening to where you will never come to Christ. God's mercy moves on. So I'm telling you, more than an Olympic hurdler who has been training for four years for that moment, this moment right now in your life, seeing who Christ is, is of much more importance. Jesus forces your hand. What are you going to choose? Are you going to choose unrepentance that maybe still believes in Jesus and comes to church? Or are you going to be humble and receive Him and love Him and worship Him? That's the question. Here's how Paul said it. Working together with Him, with Christ, this is 2 Corinthians 6, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I've listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. My prayer is, is that you'll be broken, that you'll be humbled, that you'll know that in your sin you have no hope. And while Christ, yes, will get in and expose the ugliness inside, He's also the one who came to heal the brokenhearted, the captives, the poor. Father, I pray that you would help us not be like the Nazarenes who rejected the Lord. Father, I pray that we would read the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, chapter 4, that we would know that it's normal and right for us to be concerned about our hearts growing evil and unbelieving and being deceived by sin. Father, I pray that we would be on guard, that we would quickly repent when we see sin in our lives, that we would not test you. Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.